It's about the tools we use. It's about the stories we tell. It's about how we change. It's evolution, baby. And welcome back. I am super excited this week to be once again joined by my freaking co-podcaster, Michael Porcelli, and also my brother, Casey Capshaw, who I've known for, boy, over a decade and a half at this point. And I wanted to bring the both of them on today um, to have a pretty, pretty engaging discussion that ties into a whole bunch of different things. So first, a little context. Um, The three of us are all I would say, uh, passionate thinkers and have some shared values around the concepts of authentic relating, healthy communication, um, integral as a philosophy and kind of system, which we're able to kind of speak a similar language around to create some shared reality around. And also a desire to kind of move away from the current social media atmosphere of just like reducing everyone to sound bites and attacking and divisiveness. And so this conversation kind of springs out of uh, something I got to own. So, you know, maybe about a month ago, um, I was getting really fired up about uh, this this thing I saw happening online, uh, you know, that Trump is a master at of alliterative names. Like, uh, you know, we just, or not even illiterate necessarily, but noun plus person, right? And you kind of reduce someone into a marketing point that immediately sets a frame on them that no matter what, this person is seen as that, you know, I think it it was like, it's like what Sleepy Joe and, or um, Sleepy Jeb, was that it? That was one of them, I think. Crooked Hillary. Um, Crooked Hillary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, he's really good at it, you know, at doing that. But I went on a rant numerous times online of, you know, how dehumanizing that is because you're reducing someone to almost nothing, right? You're actually taking their humanity away. And so I went on some rants on that. And then another mutual friend of ours posted something about the pandemic and libertarians. And I immediately jumped on and wrote this really snarky comment about, you know, they wouldn't do anything and they let everyone die or something like that. I think I said. And so Casey here jumped in and he called my bullshit. You know, he, he literally was just like, hey man, like what the fuck is with that? Like that's so reductionist. You probably don't even know what you're talking about. Um, most of what people consider, you know, libertarian is not actually the full body of work. You know, most libertarians don't really have much social sway or engagement in our in our culture. And I had to sit with that for a couple of days. And then it opened up a pretty amazing thread um, on our Twitter where a whole bunch of ideas I would not have been exposed to, uh, particularly about the pandemic and what's happening right now, kind of came into my feed. And it was like good source stuff, you know, like people who really think about these things. And I kind of sat with that for a couple of days and then had to kind of own up of like, oh my God, you just called me on my own shit, right? I was totally reducing this thing to, to kind of, um, 
uh, just just a value judgment without actually engaging with it. So that brings us to this conversation where I definitely have some antibodies to a lot of what I would label as libertarian thinking. And Casey and I have gotten into it sometimes in the past, but I have to admit, I'm not very well educated. Like I, I haven't spent a lot of time um, relating to the body of work, getting into it deeper. You know, I certainly have my worldview and part of why I wanted to invite these two gentlemen on was because we do have so much shared reality and shared values. I thought it'd be a really cool way to open up a discussion and for me to learn um, about a belief structure that I don't know a lot about and haven't particularly um, resonated with so far. But this is one of the cool things I, I think we do have an opportunity to start moving towards in, in our culture of, hey, we can disagree and we can talk about where we do share values and learn about each other. And that's probably going to strengthen both people's positions in the end, in a healthy way, like make us better, better thinkers. So that's all a long tee up to, 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 yeah, start to talk about this, you know, different ideology of, you know, what I, like I said, I don't have a ton of understanding about, but, you know, from what I do gather and what I have kind of the map I've made in my head is, you know, oriented towards free markets less centralized control and maximizing, um, in my mind, I guess what you'd say agency and liberty at an individual level. And so my inspiration for kind of bringing you guys on is to start to talk about this and open this up and get educated about, you know, what are some of the misconceptions I think would be really great to hear from you, Casey, as someone who's, you know, has engaged with this deeper body of work and probably does see the way people understand it and maybe where that doesn't line up with the deeper thinking, I think would be really cool. And then um, we can kind of just go from there. Yeah. Well, I'm honored to be talking with you and I just want to commend you for your ability to receive that energy intervention and, and actually take it in and that and sit with it and, and go, yeah, you know, maybe, Maybe there is some. So curiosity came from that, which is uncommon. You know, I don't typically engage around politics on social media, especially Twitter anymore, because it just never goes well, you know, uh, and politics is a fascinating thing. I mean, if you, you know, we all come from an integral background, which includes, you know, a spiritual understanding and politics is this interesting little module on the ego, right? Like I identify as, you know, even like as we frame this libertarian, like I'm sort of hesitant to say I'm a libertarian. Although if you had to throw me in a bucket, that one kind of fits. But what does that even mean? Like myself is this category, therefore what? Like I have to do all the things those guys I have to agree with everything they say, or I have to defend it or whatever. So I just... I notice myself, like, why do I feel like I have to defend this word libertarian, you know, but it is because I do care about some of the ideas that are in that school of thought. And I care about a lot of the people doing a lot of hard work to forward the philosophy. And, and I, know, I, I engage with these people I have for years and I, I know they're compassionate people. I know they're not just selfish, you know, me first you know, egomaniacs. I, I, I know this about those people. So I, I, I kind of felt like coming to their defense, coming to my own defense, but with a little bit of a grain of salt. But what I really, you know, in that interaction, I was really like, Jason, 
you don't have to agree with libertarianism, but I want you to know what you're talking about, right? Like I, I want you yeah, to totally. not, not misrepresent it when you do disagree, right? So, so that was part of my little intervention. And I'll just say this. You said, well, what are some solid sources? And I listed one tweet and I tagged like four people and all of them jumped in the thread. And you guys don't know this, but this was like a little all-star group of, of libertarian thinkers that are active online. So I was like, this is great. <laughs> um, you know, Per, per Byland is a philosophy prof- or economics professor uh, and a libertarian. He writes books, papers, uh, Jeffrey Tucker published uh, author books of papers. I mean, these guys are like heavy hitters in terms of uh, libertarian thinking. So that was fun for me. Totally. Yeah. I, fo- I followed them all. And I noticed <laughs> just speaking to the systemic though, um, they don't show up in my feed because they're such an outside source. So my algorithm isn't optimized to them. So I still have to like make some time to go in. Mm. And again, it's, it's so interesting that, right. Even when I do opt into a new thing, the system as it's set up hasn't yet prioritized that for me, but I do appreciate those references and yeah, I'm following them all. Which is fascinating. And Porch, you know, I want you to hold the meta perspective here. Like, you know, we can dip into kind of what libertarian means to me and things I think about and stuff, but you're always great at holding the candle or holding the light on the, uh, the, the, the ego attachment, the cognitive biases, the, you know, all the reasons we don't believe certain things. So I don't know, maybe you set a little frame for your position here. Sure. Um, I definitely find my, my personality type attracts to kind of mediator roles in conflict. Like I just, that's just generally where I go. Like, let me help these people understand each other and make peace. So like maybe that will show up here in this conversation. So I got my eye on that. Um, <clears throat> I think to speak to my relationship with, uh, with Casey in particular, like, um, you know, oftentimes I'm like his, uh, a, just a listener when, when Casey gets kind of grouchy about <laughs> politics or, you know, like, um, feels misunderstood or, or something like that. And, and then to, to even kind of notice like the tension, you know, when you guys have spoken up politically online, you guys are definitely pulling for very different, uh, political angles and so i was like oh this could be an interesting and juicy conversation here and uh so i'm I'm excited to be here and i think to say one other thing about maybe the the way this conversation takes place in the collective that is related to your little tweet exchange i think was there's this weird way that libertarians end up sort of being like a almost like the peanut gallery in like when shit goes down because they really don't have that much political influence as an actual party, but there's, there's often kind of ways that they get kind of caught up in it by either, you know, sitting back kind of going like, well, if it was up to us, this bad shit wouldn't even be happening. So there's a little bit of this um, superiority thing sometimes I hear. And then, uh, and then they also become a bit of a whipping like boy of the left kind of going like, see, this is because libertarians are influencing, you know, right wing politics way too much. And uh, and then libertarians are going, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, this is <laughs> what Republicans are doing is not libertarian. Right. Like, so there's this 
weird triangulation that often kind of happens in these online discussions and 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 the position that libertarians often get in is sort of like not really in a not really playing in the influence directly but then often sort of spectating with a lot of criticism of like well you know this is this is why the right sucks this is why the left sucks and if we could just get in there and do our thing you know it'd be so much better and so like sometimes i think uh in my conversations with casey like I, I get to be on the receiving end of Casey's frustrations about like, uh, this whole thing sucks. And, and I have this own version of, of um, this whole thing sucks. Also, like I, I generally feel dissatisfied with the quality of the political discourse, but also just dissatisfied with just generally what the dominant political parties stand for. Like to me, it's, it's not like a, you know, an equivalence on all counts. You know, there's definitely moments where I feel more of my lefty and definitely moments where I feel more libertarian or more right wing. It's sort of, I think what it feels like to be an integral perspective perhaps, or at least the way I make sense of that. But yeah, the whole thing sucks overall to me. And uh, so I think some of that is going to be part of the conversation and it's a little bit of the position of libertarians. They're in a little bit of like, that's sort of the perspective. This whole system sucks. The system is broken. It's kind of part of the, maybe it's not part of the principles of libertarianism, but that's often kind of the, the voice of a disgruntled libertarians. Like the whole system sucks, right? Like <laughs> put us in charge. It'd be better. You know, ironically, it's the whole system sucks. No one should be in charge. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we don't really get anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That uh, I mean, it's part totally of the self-belief there in, or whatever you want to call it. Like, yeah, the irony. Yeah, that's that's part of the part of the thing. Is like you can't you can't blame libertarians. They, they're not even they can't even agree on who to run for any office because they're all like, "You're not a real libertarian." What do you mean you want to control people? <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, well, cool. Let me just let me just jump into this, and I've, I've got a few points that I want to kind of touch on, and then I've got some kind of supporting ideas around that, and just jump in anytime. I don't really want this to be like an argument. I'm certainly not trying to change anyone's mind, yours, your listeners, anybody. Like, I'm a libertarian thinker. I'm going to live my life. I'm the least of your concerns. <laughs> like, I'm not going to pass any laws you don't like. I'm not going to take anything from you. Like, I'm the guy that, you know, I'm neutral I mean, by, by philosophy, right? So, uh, and, you know, I don't have a choice but to go along with whatever the system is doing, right? Like, we all kind of get carried along by whatever the political parties are doing. So, anyway not trying to change your mind, but I think, you know, I'd like, I'd like to soften your view or listeners view of kind of what a libertarian is and kind of why, right. There's a lot of like misconstrual, like, Oh, you know, Ayn Rand elevated selfishness above the notion of selflessness. So that's what libertarian, they're all just selfish. And it's like a bunch of misunderstandings. Ayn Rand is not libertarianism that she's, she's a voice in there, but she's not the whole of it. So anyway, uh, so a few key points. Uh, first, I, I will argue that libertarianism is, is fundamentally, it's a worldview of compassion. And it might not sound like that, but it's built around a profound assertion of consent as paramount, right? Consent is principle to libertarians. Uh, you'll hear 
taxation is theft or blah, blah, blah. And like, they sound like the little funny catchphrases or whatever, but it's like, I didn't agree to this. I can't get out of this. I don't consent to this. Right. So like consent is, is important. And we know that's important in relationships. We know that's important in authentic relating. We know it's important in dating and, and marriage. Consent is everything. Right. Um, so this is just sort of expressing that all the way up. Um, nonviolence, uh, the huge, the Libertarian Party, as it's known today, kind of grew up in the 70s and 80s, and it was opposed to Vietnam War, you know, as opposed to all these wars. It was opposed to, to initiating violence. It was opposed to the movement of the U.S. towards this imperial power, just initiating force all over the world. Um, and, and for what? Right? Like, there's no justification. It's not a rational justification for all this stuff. You know, you, yep. you, you'd, you'd be hard pressed to make a case that we rationally went into Iraq or, or any of these things. I mean, you just, you don't just go murder people when you disagree with them. Right. So, so nonviolence, non-aggression, um, the non-aggression is, is, uh, pretty profoundly understood in libertarianism, meaning, uh, you know, there's no justification for taxation under non-aggression. You know, if you want something from me, you, you can work out a relationship with me. And I will, if I consent, then we do an exchange. Right. Um, that might be a sticking point for a lot of people. We can get into that in a little bit, but like, <clears throat> I'm just kind of running down some fundamentals. So, and then another one is humanism. That's, you know, people are, are first, like a country is a sort of a fiction. A border is a sort of a fiction. Um, people are the thing, the actual human relationships, the, my, my, my family, my community, my church, my business, like the actual things, not the kind of conceptual categories we, we fall under. So it's like, it's a very humanist worldview. Um, so that's the, you know, the fundamental worldview of compassion. You guys want to say anything about any of that? Uh, I like that is a, is a framing, honestly, right? Even that to me is an angle that uh, it has never really hit my system in that way to, to just frame it as, yeah, this is, this is a worldview of compassion. Um, I, 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 I like that. And obviously that's something I give a shit about. So <laughs> I, yeah, I, I thought that's, that's a, a good, good in for me. Yeah. That's a good place for us to start. Uh, I'll go on to my, my next point is, and I kind of touched on it, but like person to person relationships are key. It's, it's not, you know, put this guy in office, he can represent, represent my needs for four years and I hope for the best. You know, it's like, I want to sell you a car. You want to buy a car. We have an interaction, mutually beneficial interaction, right? Um, like, why am I worried about what's going on in LA? Why am I worried about what's going on in New York city? Like, why would their ways of living apply to me here in the mountains of Colorado. Like it's, it's just, it's, it's too abstract, it's too removed. Right. So the, the libertarian position is more real relationships, like real person to person interaction and, you know, politics as we practice it in the United States is so div divisive. You, you touched on this in your, in your intro, right? So like, why are we doing that? You know, we're letting politics like break up families or like create rifts in communities, you know? Um, so the libertarians are just like, none of that. Like that's not, not, not the mm -hmm. thing. Although, you know, we end up being, being a political voice. So we're, we're the ones, you know, we're just another one to push away as the other. So uh, another point I want to make is um, 
is there's like an epistemic humility about libertarianism, uh, meaning the complexity of life is just so great and so mysterious that that no one should be leading, like no one is qualified for any of these jobs, right? Like no one can can possibly understand. I, I mean, we've got a pretty prime example of that with the president right now. I mean, I think no one would disagree that that guy he just kind of fumble fucks his way through through the day and like I don't know. I mean, I could think of some people I'd rather have in there in terms of competence, but really, no one's going to be competent. You know, I mean, you could say like pull together the right coalition. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But like uh, there's just a, there's just a humility. I mean, you know, one of the points that's made I, I can maybe talk about later, but like no one person knows how to make a pencil. Something as simple as a pencil requires a body of knowledge, resources, coordination on a global scale to just come together. You, you know, rubber, you got to bring steel for the little rubber holder. You got to get the wood, you got to get the lead. Like no one person could make a, a modern pencil. You know, you can make something, a stick with something in it maybe, but like you're not going to be able to make a pencil, right? Like that's just the simplest thing you can think of is so complex. We couldn't even do it. So there's some humility about libertarianism. Like, well, well, I don't know. Let's let the market and the, the mesh work of human decisions decide. And I think a fourth and final main point uh, is just this acknowledgement of human failings, right? Like uh, Mark Michael Lewis actually made this point to me. He's, he said, um, you know, any political solution has to account for corruptibility fallibility and unintended consequences. And no matter how good a person you put in there, he's corruptible. He can make mistakes. And most importantly, there'll be things they do that they won't, they'll, they'll won't see the consequences. You know, so many good ideas sound great. And then all this unknown fallout happens. The best laid plans of mice, of mice and men, you know, um, and so for corruptibility, it's the Lord of the Rings, right? Like the, the ring of power is seductive and corrupting, right? It's no one can hold it, not even Frodo, the most pure uh, of the hobbits, right? <laughs> like, and that, that, that book is like the libertarian, like, you know, work of great fiction, but that's what they're talking about. It's like when you, you know, no matter how good we think we are, when we get put in the right place with enough power and opportunity, we can be corrupted. So that's sort of my overarching frame how's that sound love it actually yeah it's great um i think those are all great key points and you know definitely give me some things that i think would be useful for me to pick pick your brain around you know just even in terms of shooting off the hip yeah um Shoot. things i noticed about that of you know so one thing i heard that i'd be curious about was or just struck me was the, the, the value around, you know, like what does someone in New York have to do with me and my locality, mm -hmm. which, which I get. And then I just be curious in your mind, like, how does that map though onto that same thing of like the complexity of a pencil is so great. No one person could do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, do, do you feel the tension there of like, would Colorado have pencils if there wasn't somewhere holding that complexity elsewhere, like the relationship between that of, you know, in, we are in such an interdependent place or is the argument more to 
um, like, well, we should be making pencils in Colorado in, in our locality, as opposed to somewhere else where we have no control over that. Does that, does that make sense? What, what I'm kind of feeling in that tension? I think so. I don't feel the tension. So I may be so far down this road that I just, that's not a thing for me, but like, I think there's a key distinction between like the voluntary nature of pencil creation or pencil need, right? <laughs> like if people in Colorado say they want a pencil, someone in New York says, I'll provide you a pencil. And then we say, yes. Right. Whereas if New York says you can no longer buy alcohol on Sundays, uh, maybe a bad example, but <laughs> you know, an example, uh, we'd be like, well, we like to drink on Sundays. It's not your business. You don't drink on Sundays if you don't want to, but it's why are you telling us not to, right? It's, it's the sort of, uh, gotcha. the federalist versus, uh, what was the other, like states' rights versus uh, federal rights, you know, notion. And, and you know, uh, the funny thing about libertarianism is like this country was originally very libertarian, right? Like the, the original constitution, the founding fathers, like they were saying, like, we, we need just the most minimal government. We need to slow it down as much as we can because governments tend to grow. We need to distribute authority as far down as we can, you know, and then since then it's, grown like a leviathan <laughs> you know, I, george washington would just if he would just die if he saw what quote government is today i think he would be like oh time to revolution again i think <laughs> Porch, you got anything hey, Jason, i want to speak yeah. i want to speak to this thing you're talking about because i think you're i think i do sense the tension that you're talking about it's like there's so, you know, if, if Coloradans aren't making their own pencils, but they're being made by New Yorkers, let's just say in this example, there needs to be some uh, baseline of something that allows for the trade to happen, that allows for the, the contracts to be written and all this kind of stuff. And so there does seem to be like a need for like a unity or something like that. And at a basic level. And I think some of the things, if you, if you look at, uh, libertarianism, at least some of the ways that I understand it is, um, well, the, the market itself needs to have at least some baseline protections, right? Like some way of doing like tort law to, to, to decide when there's conflicts over private contracts, for example, or, there needs to be kind of the protection of the notion of private property. So, you know, there's, there's definitely, if you go way far out, you sort of get anti-state um, versions of libertarianism, but at the very least, there's this kind of like minimalistic state that many libertarians agree to, but its job is really to kind of perform what is the, the minimum viable amount of shared reality really that everyone should sign up for so that we can essentially like basically live independently. And if, if you think of the way I think religious people uh, treat like the religious freedoms of the United States is very much like that. Like we're not going to be a Christian country or a Muslim country, but we're going to be a country where Christians and Muslims can like live together. I mean, just to make it simple. Um, so the idea here is we don't want to have like a, to keep adding or expanding the, uh, what would you call it? Like the, the, the set of things that are like norms for everybody or morals or ethics for everybody. You actually want to like 
crank that needle downwards because like the smaller the amount of stuff that everybody needs to agree to, the actual more people can be included in it. So there's actually, there's another thing that Casey didn't speak to that I think of as either directly or indirectly behind a libertarian philosophy, which is like maximize inclusion, right? But the, the, the funny thing is you, you maximize inclusion by decreasing the amount of things that everybody needs to agree to. And that's like, that's a kind of a sort of a systems way of thinking of where some of the libertarian ideas come from. Make sense? I love that. I love that. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. That was a subtext of what I was thinking, but that's a, that's a great point. I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to use that in the future. Yeah. I think that's, that's a useful concept for me to um, wrap my head around because that's, you know, certainly one of the things I value in this concept of government. And, you know, I can be wrong here is just the idea of like the floor, you know, you could call it the safety net, the floor of behavior, the floor of values, um, the floor of, you know, how badly are really we willing to accept someone, um, someone's life can get right in our culture. Like here's the floor that we kind of try to agree upon. No one should be able to drop down below, which to me is, is like an important thing. And that's maybe what I don't, where I often don't see that value being included when I do kind of open up to the other side of, um, you know, less regulation. Cause again, like regulations to me can be overdone, but the idea would be like, there's a certain floor, right? There's a certain, like your food can't be shittier than this because it'll kill people. Mm -hmm. Um, that from my side, I imagine ideally in a free market, the market would handle that. But I think where, like, so my belief structure comes in, and I'm like, I don't trust the market to handle that. Like, I, I don't trust companies to take on that level of, you know, responsibility. Um, and so, yeah, that, you know, that's one thing that, you know, I notice as an integralist, so to speak, I'm always kind of like in both and. And so in my framework, I see like, yeah, free markets, capitalism, that's like leading edge. You generate abundance there, and then you flow that abundance back into keeping a certain floor of the culture from dropping below, right? Like no one should have to just because of where they were born or certain parents have to live shittier than this. So that, that would be my ideal, right? Whether or not our government and culture actually execute, uh, executes that, I don't think they do. <laughs> um, but to me, that would be, you know, part of like government's job in, in a sense of like, this is a value that, um, you know, you could argue about the effectiveness of democracy, but that, you know, we are polling people of like, hey, what do we think the values of our country are? And then we elect people and then they pass laws. Obviously, that's not exactly and then, how. And then they don't works. do what they say they're going to do. And we get more wars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just joking. I know it's a fair point. It's a fair point. But so I mean this is what something I appreciated in the Twitter thread that you um I'd be curious to hear about from you of like so in the integral world and you know in my in my work as a uh in the relational world as as well you know there's this idea of agency in communion or freedom consciousness and like love and connection and I get from like the more kind of libertarian side 
huge amount of value on on the freedom and agency. And you know, until you spoke to it in that thread and a little bit in the introduction here, I don't necessarily get expressed as a value like love that you know love itself is something worth something that a market can't necessarily measure in in my mind like it's a different kind of um currency which to me kind of translates into this idea of yeah like the the bottom floor you know what are we willing to accept as a floor like the in there's a certain level of inefficiency in that, you know, and actually I'm just going to ramble a bunch of things out. And then I want you guys to <laughs> help me go here. I read, uh, I got read this fucking, I loved it. So simple. So one of the thought leaders I like is this guy, um, Kevin Kelly. And he posted just this simple, super simple tweet. The function of governments are to be inefficient, stockpiling extra resources and unneeded latency for use in emergencies, which businesses and individuals cannot afford to do. So to me, that's the kind of the concept of taking the, you know, the fat or the cream off the top and then, you know, redistributing it. Yes. And allocating it. So in crisis or, you know, depending on your circumstance at birth, if you're born in this country, you don't have to live any worse, worse than X. And like, to me, that's a both and that I'm like, fuck, yeah, that feels awesome. Um, you know, I have no problem with with markets and um, capitalism, I think it's it's great. You know, with certain regulations and restrictions, we can kind of talk about. But um, just curious how that lands. All that's a lot of stuff I just vomited out. Um, but this idea of like the leading edge in the net, and that's something I don't understand about. Like, you know, how does the free market, um, or how would it ideally? you know, in the right circumstance, if, if these, this ideology did have power, how would it handle that? Like safety net? Let me do a, let me do a paraphrase to, to see if I can kind of cohere the thing. And then let's see what Casey has. to yes. say. So, so what I hear there is something like, um, what is, what does it mean to, to, kind of from an ethical point of view, like the greater social good. Like if, you know, if there is this ideal of, of compassion that we're all sharing here and, you know, Casey's saying like, yeah, that's part of libertarianism too, is, um, then, you know, what, uh, like how, how bad are we willing to kind of tolerate it being for some fellow humans maybe local, maybe somewhere else. Oftentimes these, these, uh, types of arguments are used for philanthropy as well, right? Like, you know, this is a motivation to give, right? So, but I, I get what you're saying. It's kind of like, uh, the, the social good is a piece that you're looking for. And there's like a mechanism that I heard you talk about, like the mechanism for social good might be like, well, the state by virtue of it sort of applying to everybody, or the government, because because we're sort of all, you know, supposedly, you know, part of this unit that we call the nation or the nation state, uh, that that's kind of its social function would be to do something that maybe no actor, person, or private company might be motivated to do uh, from purely like market incentives. Um, but it's kind of their job to like sort of puts inject some friction into the system 
that allows some surpluses to be aggregated. And then you kind of get something like a transfer, right? Like a redistribution such that that bottom end can be bolstered uh, in cases where maybe the market left up to its own devices wouldn't bolster it. That's the argument that I kind of hear in what you're saying. And it's a kind of one that I hear often kind of uh, leveled against libertarianism was like, well, what about the ways that the market fails to provide for this type of social good, which is kind of like providing this floor. And uh, I think it, you know, when I encountered that argument just on its own terms, it really does seem like, yeah, like what, what company really cares about doing that? And that company really just cares about its own bottom line, you know, or individual citizens maybe just care about, you know, their own kind of like household benefit. Right. But that's sort of like, and then that leaves out, you know, how do we as a whole kind of, you know, collectively serve or provide for the least among us, basically. That's what I'm getting. Am I getting you? Yeah, I think that's a a great summary. Exactly. Totally. And we can circle back um, to even, you know, an interesting, very personal version of that, of like, I'm curious how the market would handle this. But before we dive into that, I'd, I'd love to hear. I, I imagine there's a response, right? And, and it's one I don't know. So I'm super curious. Yeah, well, there's so much There's so much there, right? And I'm not going to exhaust it. And I'm not going to give you the definitive, like, world-changing answer here. But what I'll say is one angle that I was thinking as you were playing that out. Well, first, I should caveat. Like, I also want the least fortunate of us to have the best chances, right? Like I want that. That's a value I hold. Uh, the way to get there would be where we're kind of splitting the hairs or whatever. And I could be wrong about ways to get there. And we, you know, we can hash that out. But so one, one thing I, I and I've heard this argument before a lot, right? So from an integral perspective, one frame that might serve is the notion of masculine compassion, right? When I see someone who's down and out or not living up to their fullest or being, you know, laying on the couch, smoking weed, not getting a job or whatever, do I give them a hundred bucks or do I try to get them a job? Right. It's, it's like, it's a, there's a fundamental belief among libertarians that each individual has the ability to contribute value to society right? Like some value, some way, somewhere, everybody has the ability. Um, and you could say that's a little bit idealistic. Yeah, it is a little bit idealistic. Like I believe everybody can do something right. But if you give them an out, they might not do it right. Like if I don't have to feel the pain of my not doing a thing, I don't have to change, right? Like if, if my life conditions don't hurt me, then I don't evolve, right? So from an integralist perspective, it's like, mm, maybe you just need to suffer a little bit until you you pick yourself up. And here's some, here's a ladder and here's a rope and here's a, a step, you know, choose how you want to do it, right? So, so there's one frame, right? The libertarians do believe fundamentally that everybody can contribute something, right? Um, and then that the, the state intervention actually provides a disincentive for, for really scrapping and trying to, to, to add value. Secondarily, uh, the, mo- many libertarians come from 
churches or communities, right? And so they, they there's a default position, which is like, well, that's the the church or community's job to take care of all of its its flock, right? It's people. And you could also say like charitable organizations or or anything like that. And I think the value in that perspective is that when you deal with the state and like the welfare program, you're not a human. You're a statistic. You're a number. You qualify for your whatever benefit. You get it. They don't know who the hell you are. They don't know what you're doing with it. You could drink it all, smoke it all. You could have legitimate use for it. They don't know who you are. They don't care. Whereas in your community, if you see one of your brothers struggling, ideally you would reach out or the family, ideally you would reach out, right? Now you could say, well, that's just not how the world works. And you could be right, you know, but we do have this sort of Borg that's in the space of the community, the church, the family, the charitable organization, the, the, you remember the odd fellows, right? Or the, the Masons, like those used to be the odd fellows was like this, this organization where they had like three, three principles. It was like, I can't remember the principles, but it was like, take care of your brother, like feed the homeless and bury the dead. Like that was their three things. And it was literally like, Hey man, if I die at work, will you take care of my wife for me and make sure I get buried? Right. (laughs) They came together 300 years ago for that. Right. Um, So, you know, another part of this argument was like, I, I do believe that anything people value will be addressed. And uh, you, you could call it by the market. You could call it whatever you want, right? The, the market is this sort of neutral, like value neutral exchange notion, right? And, it, you, you know, people think of like com- companies as like only worried about their bottom line. But the truth is, as people's individual values progress, the company's bottom line looks different, right? Like the, the thing they address, the values they they work towards look different. And you see that, I mean, in Silicon Valley, you see it, my, you know, consulting companies, like we're addressing higher order values now. And like, it's just part of doing business, you know? So yeah, everything's anchored in like the monetary exchange and profit, but the products and services and how they do things all become an expression of the actual values of the individual people playing. Because with the free market, you have voice and you have exit, like, and your voice is stronger because you have exit. You can leave the company. You can f- refuse to buy the product. You can refuse to live in the neighborhood, right? Whereas under the umbrella of the state, I can't leave. I mean, I could go to a different country, but I can't get away from a state somewhere. Everywhere I go is populated by this, this notion of a state, right? So anyway, that's kind of a lot to say. And I know it's not exhausting the point, but just some frames around it. Totally. And I actually, that, um, I think leads me into, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of great stuff there. And, you know, it, it's interesting because I was talking about the floor and I think this is where the both hand of like part of my value would be actually, ideally, I would like to live in an abundant enough society where if someone wanted to live at a ceiling, meaning, you know what, I just want to get 1200 bucks from the government a month and just live in my shitty apartment and do that. And if I'm not willing to put in any work, I can't live the lifestyle above that. Like I'd actually be okay with that. Like I, I would personally be okay with that. Like culturally that, that we're, we're fine with that. Um, but I think that there's a deeper thing here. Cause I, I love what you just said about 
like access to the market and your opportunity to kind of exit it at any time. And I think that's another area where I get lost in terms of power in the market, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, if I have no money, there's a limited way I can participate in the market compared to someone with a lot of money who can make pretty heavy decisions. And no one decided, you know, I guess, and this is where like regulation and monopoly comes in of like, you know, we have the idea of these super elites that yes, ideally develop certain values and want to serve the common good. Um, but, you know, and there's a lot going on right now about Elon and Bill Gates and, you know, the great things they're doing. And there is the tension of like, I didn't elect these guys, right? Like, why should they be able to make decisions um, about our culture? And so this is a question for me about someone about that access piece, because in my mind, right, and I ramble a lot. So this will be my last thing, and then I'll open it up. <laughs> um, related to this is right, the idea of maximizing individual liberty is, is an assumption I've made somewhat about libertarian thinking, right? Maximizing a person's agency, the choices they can make in their own life and in the world. And so in my mind, I'm very interested in, in terms of totally free markets, how do they handle the network effect? Meaning, you know, particularly in a global society now where there are no geographical restrictions and corporations or companies can grow exponentially and there's no more natural limit, right? So like Amazon, these mega corporations that we're seeing can kind of accrue um, unlimited power. Whereas a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, they would hit some geographic limits, right? So they couldn't actually dominate at that scale. Um, what's the check on them? And then, you know, what's, how do I phrase this? Like, in my mind, right, if there's just three mega corporations, they have a shit ton of power and I don't, mm -hmm. right? And, and we're seeing this play out. Like, there's no, there's nothing, there's no regulation stopping Amazon right now. So, you know, they're just going to consolidate more market power right now. And because of the network effect, it's ideally, yeah, startup could come in with a better product. But the idea that the more people you have that participate in a network, the more useful it becomes, you know, which is kind of more of a mathy side of things. Like, I don't see how the free market can, can um, work those things. And so I'm curious about that. Like, you know, what is the free market's response to unfettered growth when it's not, you know, I, I would say always healthy. And then this is just another ideological thing I have of like, if the idea is to like maximize individual liberty <clears throat> and spending power is one way to do that, you know, increasing the surface area of money seems like it'd be a great way to do that. So Bill Gates can literally only spend so much money right? When it accrues and then suddenly it's a very top-down thing. I will give it to this charity. I will give it to this charity versus if you took all of his money and divided it up by all the people on the planet tomorrow and just dispersed it, there would be a shit ton of agency the next day in terms of where that money goes and localities. So those two totally <laughs> random kind of things. Um, but just start wherever you want.
either of you. I've got some thoughts on this. Um, I think, well, what I'm going to say is probably going to only address some of what you're, you brought up because you brought up a lot of things. So there's going to be an incomplete solution. Uh, but one of the things that I would challenge in some of what I'm hearing you say is kind of the, there's, there's a collapsing of the system dynamics with, uh, this kind of idea of like the state doing it versus the market doing it. And in a way you could say this, this kind of aggregation of asymmetrical power exists in the market and it exists in the state. And it's kind of a problem to the degree it's a problem. It's really just kind of a problem across the board. The idea of like the ring of power or the idea of like power begets more power or, or ideas of systemic inequality and those types of things, I think kind of capture some aspect of this. Uh, but if you're talking about like, well, what is the, what is the free market's answer to that sort of thing? Um, there's there's plenty of answers that I've heard that don't come under the rubric of the state at all. So, for example, there's a whole movement called the effective altruist movement. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they kind of try to apply, you know, Bill Gates and um, Peter Singer, the kind of the most renowned living ethical philosopher, um, have kind of promoted this idea. And it's actually become a whole movement. And the idea is like calculate in a way, like apply kind of math, you know, cause, cause a lot of charitable giving is sort of like you give and you feel good and kind of goes down a black hole. You don't know if the charity is actually doing the thing that they say that they're going to do with the money. And so effective altruists were like, cool, give us some metrics, sh- demonstrate that you're doing the thing that you say that you're going to do. And so they've kind of created a, a kind of a, a multi-pronged approach to this. And this was only going to, I don't speak on behalf of effective altruism, but there's a few of these points that they do. One of which is like, you know, like, uh, earn to give like above a certain level, just like there are, there are like, uh, at least some subpopulation of like, like wall street traders who basically said like, cool, anything above whatever 60,000 that I earn just automatically. So there's some people that are like do- literally donating greater than 50% of their income into the optimized charities that are kind of vetted by the effective altruist charity evaluators. And so this is just like a massive global redistribution of of wealth and social benefit that is far more efficient than what states are able to do uh, because because it is voluntary and because it can travel across uh, international borders and like go to where the need is the most in the world so this is kind of one answer where, where i would say like well the 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 voluntary like thing this kind of consensual thing that casey has talked about which mm-hmm. is kind of more there it's like well, the more they have the flexibility to do that, the more they will do that. And sort of the ultimate example is the idea of the billionaire pledge that Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates have made and this way that they're trying to redistribute as quickly as they can. And I mean, this is, I, I think the moment that we're in, this COVID pandemic that we're in, I think is a very interesting illustration of that because you know some people are kind of like, I don't trust Bill Gates to like whatever, right? But then you can, <laughs> you can respond to that and say like, Bill Gates has been telling governments that they're not ready for a pandemic and that they should be getting ready for that for years and they just didn't listen to him so i mean do you is the problem him or is the problem that like states aren't listening to him because they have their entrenched interests so somebody like him could potentially do better in terms of providing for the public good by essentially like bypassing that through the aggregation of wealth 
that he has. And then the 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 last part that I will put here is um, there are many organizational entity types in the free market. Some of these are, you know, the S corp, the C corp, the for profit kind of thing, the publicly traded company on Wall Street and so forth. But there are other things like cooperatives and mutuals and B corps and these other kinds of things. And, and the free market is providing these alternate vehicles. And some of these functions that you're that we're talking about here it's like well what's this baseline like i mean what is social security well it's just an, an insurance fund that's run by the state right but there's plenty of private insurance you go well it sucks when it's an insurance uh aggregate that's that's for profit i would i would probably agree the incentives there are kind of shitty but there are also cooperative insurance funds which are now kind of like oh, what is that well it's sort of like in my mind, has the potential to be better than the state or a for-profit company. Like this, this kind of collapsing of uh, market means for-profit corporations is another kind of error I see in the criticism of libertarianism, because you can have any kind of organization that you want. I mean, these charity evaluators and these charity international charity companies and NGOs, these things are not state-run actors, and they are doing massive wealth transfer and and for benefit stuff like across international borders. So like these are just some of the ways that it, it is already happening that if state actors kind of like took more uh tax money away, there would be less flowing through these other pipelines, which are arguably in some cases superior pipelines than the ones that are provided by the state. So that's kind of my answer there for some of that. That's a good one. Uh, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the cynical response to that is often like, well, it's just not going to, it's just not going to happen. You know, it's like, well, I think it, I mean, it would buy some people it would buy me, you know, I care about it. Anyone who has those values, they'll do it, you know? Um, so one, one thing I wanted to sort of loop back to with your um, your talk about corporate growth and monopoly and and you know there's clearly some disadvantages to like too much centralized power, but interestingly to me is you don't apply that same critique to the state itself. The state is the biggest monopoly. It's the monopoly on the use of force, the you, the initiation of force, right? The worst thing you could do <laughs> in the marketplace, the state has the absolute monopoly over. And, you know, it, we, we've seen what it can do, right? The United States has been at war. What is it like 222 out of its 240 years or something like, you know, like I don't trust the state more than I trust any corporations, certainly. And in fact, I trust most corporations more. So the other thing I would say to that too is, the notion of monopoly, and I'm, this is going to be a sacred cow that you may not surrender to me, but the notion of monopoly is largely a myth. And by, by that, I mean, you certainly have temporal monopolies, but you don't have sustained monopolies. And a few examples of that, you know, back in, I don't know, what is it like two, 2007, if I just said, MySpace will be gone in three years, you'd have been like, no way, man, MySpace is everything. And Facebook came along and MySpace went away. You know, I mean, it hum hobbled along for a while. I mean, that's just a sort of a fun example. But, you know, do we hear about Standard Oil anymore? Do we hear about, you know, 
Carnegie Steel or whatever, right? Like those were monopolies. They came, they they got big. They get too big to sustain themselves. They get too big to move and too inefficient. And then they get taken out by scrappy competitors, right? Like Silicon Valley is built on the notion of disruption of industry, right? Taking out monopolies, right? Like the, uh, what is it? What's the real estate? You know, there used to be like these huge real estate things. And like now there's like Airbnb. It just is like, hey, we're going to destroy your business model with something that people want more, right? So you'd be hard pressed to find a monopoly that persisted for more than 50 years in, in history. Um, you know, I mean, IBM, right. IBM used to be this megalith and like IBM still big, but they certainly like, they got compressed by competitors, HP, you know, like all these Dell, Dell used to be every computer you ever, anyone had was a Dell. And now it's like, they're just a, a niche thing now. So monopoly's not, that big of fear for me. Um, the other thing I'll say is monopolies get to be monopolies by providing massive value. Like Amazon didn't get big because it wanted to be big. It got big because it really met people's needs in a way more efficient way. And I love Amazon. And when I think of Amazon, I'm like, yeah, why did I ever even go to a retail store? I don't want to go to a retail store. I want the thing in my house. I don't, I don't want to go get it. <laughs> That's a waste of time. I want it here. Sure. I can be nostalgic for small businesses. Boutiques are cool. I like entrepreneurialism is, is fundamental to libertarianism. So it's, there is a cost, but you have to, again, back to masculine compassion, either you figure out a way to provide value or you go away because you're not doing it right. Right. So the other thing I would say is like what the government does, and this is back to the seen and unseen, it tries to get in and sort of intervene in ways for to like help out things, you know, with regulation. What it's really doing is trying to preserve the status quo, and you know, often with bad and you know motives, right? Influences from voter voting blocks or whatever. But like an example of this is like licensure for say uh, cosmetologists, right? People that cut hair. Like you got to go through a year of school. You got to pay all this money. You got to get your license so that you can cut my hair. I mean, if you're good at cutting hair, just cut my hair. Right. But they, they, the state has to get in and make sure we're all safe. It's like, I don't need the, I don't need that. Right. And like, there's always a case of like, well, what about that one person who didn't do it right and got that person infected? And it's like, yeah. Okay. But what about the war? Right. Like, you know, like the, the, the medicine is worse than the disease in my eyes. Um, so that's a couple points there. Um, I want to touch on the distribution of money. Like you, you were critiquing Gates and Musk and I, I find Gates and Musk to be like, you know, he Titans of industry, like heroes, you know, they're, they're kind of like Ayn Rand heroes. Um, but I mean, if you look at like what Elon Musk has done, if you consider like pollution and climate a problem, he just dropped a systemic solution on the thing. And like, he's done more to address that than anybody, arguably anybody else, you know? So it's like, yeah, give him $10 billion. I don't care what he gets. I don't care how many yachts he drives. He's fixed a big problem. You know, he's done amazing things. Bill Gates too. I mean, he like, you know, you could say he was cutthroat in his business practices or whatever, but like he made personal computing everywhere, ubiquitous, you know, it was him and Steve Jobs, like, you know, that's a huge value add. And like the ability to like share information. I mean, Bill Gates was instrumental and like, 
he gets to have his money, right? Like uh, one, one perspective on that from the libertarian camp is like someone being very rich does not take anything away from me. It's not a zero sum notion, right? Like a market is a complex thing. An example of this is like Bill Gates doesn't buy what I buy. Like he doesn't shop where I shop. He's not going to affect the prices. He's not going to buy up all the fizzy water at the grocery store. Like he's just, if, if I didn't know about him, it would not, wouldn't be real to me. Like the, the only notion is like, it's kind of like an envy or something. Well, what He's got a big stack of gold. I should have some of that. It's like, well, okay, maybe, but like, it doesn't necessarily take anything away from me because he has a, th- a thing, you know, in the, in a market purist view, no transaction takes place unless both parties benefit from the transaction, right? Like I'm not going to give you a hundred dollars unless I want the thing more than I want the hundred dollars. Right. And you're not going to sell me the thing unless you want the hundred dollars more than the thing. Right. So it's like, it, it, there's not like a scarcity or there's not like a z- zero sum notion in markets. And this, the last thing I'll say on this, and then you guys can riff is, um, you know, prices in a market is a very dynamic expression, right? A price like moves up and down based on how much we can make or get and how much people want it. So, you know, if Bill Gates gets a lot of money, he might drive up the price of like yachts, but he does not affect the price of, of anything else down here. And like, if we took all of Bill, Bill Gates's money and spread it around, everybody gets 200 bucks or something. Like, what do we get? And what does that do? It, you know, people buy all the beer out of the liquor store or, you know, what do they like? It just, it's immaterial. And it, it, and it actually might affect prices. Like people talk about UBI. If everyone was given $2,000 a month, well, what would happen? Well, first thing that would happen was rent would go up because everyone would try to get better apartments and there's only so many apartments. So prices would go up. Right. Um, so just some appreciation of the dynamics of supply and demand and, and the price function is is pretty deep in the, in the, uh, libertarian philosophy, I'd say. So I'll, I'll leave it there. George, do you have any, any thoughts? Uh, yeah. Um, I think there's another thing I want to speak to, which is kind of related to some of the things that Casey was talking about. Um, especially this idea of like, um, it's not uh, market exchanges are not necessarily zero sum. Uh, I think there's there's kind of an argument a bit here about like balancing uh, the the spread of the wealth, right? Like, what's the, the 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 income gap between like the most wealthy and the poorest versus what's the what's the trend over time? Like, is the is the average going up or even is the bottom actually going up over time? And so how much spread in the from top to bottom are we willing to kind of tolerate um given you know uh the the rate of bringing up the bottom or bringing up the average and this is this is kind of brings in more of like a complex systems or utilitarian view on libertarianism and you know i i don't think these things are kind of like iron laws of nature necessarily but um I, I think of these as like uh, heuristics or, or principles when I think about it, where it's like, well, if there is this freedom to pursue innovation 
across like spend or invest wherever you want. Like there's this, whatever you want to call the frothy edge of the evolution of a marketplace, right? There's, there is a lot of waste. There's a lot of like companies that get st- like startups that like fail, like the majority of these things happen, but it's like, um, it's like a fanning out or a spreading into what is possible next. And like, if any one of those things work, what it ends up doing is it ends up generating more overall value uh, for everyone. And then this is the idea of like all boats rising, not, not that like the earning up at the top is taking away from something at the bottom. It's actually again boosting the bottom. And anytime you add friction to the system. Now this is, this is something that when I think of system dynamics, you know, I think some amount of friction in the system can actually be helpful. Like the kind of thing you brought up of Kevin Kelly saying like, well, maybe it's the job of certain inefficiencies to exist to sort of kind of aggregate surpluses and, or, or create hedge positions or, or those types of things. And like, sure. Some of that does seem to be useful. Um, but if you kind of gum up the works too much, right. You, you sort of, uh, take the wind out of the sails of a lot of, of a lot of people, right. It's not, and maybe you could say this is kind of the thing that, that harnesses, uh, self-interest, uh, for the greater good. I mean, this is, this is another sort of principle here. Um, but from, from a systems point of view, it's like, you can't predict or control what the next disruption will be, right? It's, it's actually this intellectual humility point that Casey brought up at the beginning. You don't really know, you can't plan what the thing is that's going to be, but then the thing happens and then more wealth is generated. The, the pie kind of expands and by whatever means, whatever taxes exist or by whatever charitable donations kind of happen, you know, from the wealthiest, uh, or whatever jobs are provided by the fact that new vistas or industries open up. Like those are things that can't be controlled from ahead of time. And this is a little bit of the, the issue of introducing more friction into the system so that you can kind of redistribute it based on something that you think, you know, or you believe that, you know, is going to do like add to the greater social good is, is kind of committing to a, a certain type of solution ahead of time. And also, uh, sort of subtracting some degrees of freedom or some quantities of free energy in the form of capital flows that could actually do the thing that you can't predict that does generate more wealth and benefits socially. So there's always got to be kind of a balance there that is balanced out by intellectual humility. And it's like, this is, this is often in my mind, the kind of systems dynamics argument against central controls or planned economies or like, you know, the way that authoritarian communist regimes tried to do the thing is like, well, we can tell like ahead of time that we know that, you know, we want all the people who are the most hungry to be fed. So we're just going to like, we're going to like plan that. (laughs) Like what is the five-year production cycle? Like, but those, those, that, those types of ideas that there was, um, I think of it as like a, a conceit of human rationality. Of, of the human mind believing that it can control reality and make a plan for how things should be, right? And there's like a, a bit of a kind of a mistrust in a way of like the, 
the, the emergent uh, dynamics that are really truly out of our control. Like a, this, this is like a, a humility in the face of uh, forces and dynamics that that we can't actually fully comprehend. And like the, the, I think this is a a good way of thinking of of libertarianism is is a bit of a a trust in that, a trust in the unknown, a, a like a skepticism of the the conceit of the human rational planner who can like a lot of these ideas that came out of like high modernist philosophy that actually sort of like led to Marx is sort of like a, a pinnacle of a kind of a high modernist conceit of being able to like understand from mind and like categorize label and measure everything so that that you can actually plan what's best for everyone. It was completely disastrous to try to do that. Right. Like the, the answer is to like subtract away some of that, like, belief that this can be controlled to just allow for this kind of like fan out of emergence and investment and speculation to happen because that's the thing that ultimately drives and lifts up all of the things across the board no matter you know yeah anyway that's my views on that (laughs) good one i love that totally i think that's that's a beautiful um encapsulation of so much of that I could probably listen to that 20 times to, to fully have it digest, you know, as I'm just sitting with that. Um, and I know we gotta, we gotta begin to to wrap up here as we all have lives to go back to. Um, I guess you know, a question I have bringing it back is, and I think you'll have a, an answer for this, Casey, like, Depth of consciousness and self-harm, right? So, you know, and I got into this on Twitter a little bit that, you know, in our part of the story, at least at some time, the three of us all bought into was this idea of like integral theory and the development of consciousness. And, you know, one of the classic tales told about that, which is just a perspective, doesn't mean it's true, um, is that so, yeah, uh, consciousness got to a certain level here in the West and the birth of America. And so the government decided certain ideals that they wrote into the constitution and the bill of rights that they then enforced on those whose values hadn't yet developed there. Right. That's kind of the, kind of the idea. Um, you might not agree with this, but as a society, society, we've agreed you can't walk to someone, walk over to someone and shoot them in the face. Like that, that's, you know, we're not down with that. Um, and, you know, as a new parent, I, I, I see this dynamic all the time, right? Even my four-month-old, there's things she wants to do that I'm t- making choices for her because I have greater awareness and depth of consciousness, right? No, you actually need to go to bed right now, right? She doesn't want to go to bed, but I know what happens if she doesn't go to bed in that moment, Right. And I would argue that's because I have a deeper consciousness and that it's actually a deep act of self-love that I give her that discipline and I actually remove her choice in that point. Now, obviously, this is super sticky, but I am curious about like in the free market angle, how does depth of consciousness and values you know, express itself? Does that, does that make sense? Or how, yeah. how does that come out in terms of like... 
Um, do we just allow a racist to be a racist? Do we just allow, uh, you know, um, a religious fundamentalist to, yeah, you're allowed to just go recruit and, and bring people in to that ideology. And in my mind, this is an area where the government kind of does have some purpose. And I, I'm just curious, like what the, the other side of that is in that, um, you know, how would that, how would that play out in, in a market? There, there might be a way, but I, I don't understand that mechanism. Yeah, well, let me just uh, give a little couch of this. So libertarianism as a notion spans a spectrum. On one end, you have small government minarchists. And on the other end, you have anarcho-capitalists, right? Full on, like there should be zero government. And there's a whole expression in between. I'm yeah. there somewhere, but I don't even want to self-identify. For this point, uh, if you look back at the uh, founding of the country, right? The It was so minarchist. It was basically like don't shoot that guy in the face, do whatever else you want. Right. There was just not much. Um, so, you know, I don't know where to, where to start with this, but essentially like if we want to couch it in like integral terms, it's, uh, you know, the founding of this country was an orange, you know, meme rational expression, right? It was, it was saying, you know, the individual is paramount. You're not, you're not forced to be part of this mythic membership thing, um, you know, at least by constitution, right? But the, the notion of the country and patriotism is an amber meme thing, right? So you get this like mix of like amber meme values and orange meme values from the from the start with everything else in there too, sure. Um, yeah. But one of the principles of, of integralism is you can't force people up the spiral, right? So the good thing about the orange was like, you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone you know, and then we can voluntarily exchange from there. Um, so I don't know that I can envision a system that goes up beyond that. Right. Like I, I would not personally want to live in like a, a, a green meme enforced value world. Like I just, we're, we're kind of moving towards it. Right. But like speech police and like, you can't think certain things and you know, whatever. I, I don't want to live there. Right. Um, so I think like the integral move is like acknowledging like people are where they are. Um, we want to have some sovereignty of the whole on, right? Like your individual self needs to be protected by some mechanism, either yourself or uh, an insurance organization or some sort of security force or something, whatever that is, right? Like we, we can ag agree that like you don't do certain things. Um but I, I guess I don't I, like what we're describing here is sort of like the leading edge emergent of like what a social organization would be. So I, I'm not going to pretend I know what that looks like, you know. Um, but I do know that like if I want someone to evolve, I don't force them to. Right? Like I try to show them the benefits of the evolution, or or they sit in an uncomfortable spot long enough where they go seeking to get out, you know, to to transcend their situation, right? So. Um, that's kind of back to, you know, the, the masculine compassion point. It was like, like, you know, and this is kind of true. I mean, there's a whole movement in libertarianism around peaceful parenting. Like they take it pretty far. <laughs> like the kid is sovereign and like, we just create conditions to help them grow, but we don't make them do things or whatever. You know, I don't know. I don't want to get into all that, but um, yeah. you know, I'm not, I don't have a super strong, like nailed it answer for you here. Um, 
I just find the government is very suspect. Like I don't trust the government to express my values because my values are beyond the government. Like I don't, Donald Trump doesn't know what to do with my money. Right? I could spend my money way better than that government can. Hands down. I have a hundred percent belief in that. And in, in, in terms of like values, I mean, I mentioned it a bit at the first, but like I'm horrified by the notion of war. I've been horrified by the notion of war since I was a child. Right. I was afraid I used to have to get under my desk. Why did I, I don't think I had to get under my desk for nuclear threat, but I was fucking terrified of the Russians sending nukes. Like when I first learned about that, I was like, that's the scariest thing I've ever heard. We spend a lot of resource maintaining the threat to do that to the rest of the world. You know, it's like, that's not where I would want my money going, you know? Um, and like I said, we've been, we've been in wars my whole life, man. Vietnam, Iraq one, Iraq two, Afghanistan, whatever's going on in Yemen right now. We did, we took out Libya, the whole, um, Central America. We basically like devastated them. We, we hold Puerto Rico like this vassal state that they barely, they, they don't have rights. You know, it's just, what is this? You know, like, I don't want to, I don't want to support this. So, you know, I, I'll, I'll say that a big like emotional and personal part of my libertarianism is just absolute disgust with what I've seen. Uh, the country do. And, and I lost faith that voting for anybody is ever going to change it. You know, like my personal history, you know, I, I grew up a, essentially Democrat. I voted for Clinton. I voted for Ralph Nader because I thought he was, you know, speaking the right to the right problems. Uh, I voted for Barack Obama. And I think when Obama came into office was the super transition for me. It was like, Bush, he's what is these guys doing? They're just going to war with people. It's clearly over economics and oil. Like they're lying to us. What is this? Obama comes in. I love the guy. He's charming, right? He speaks well, but he murdered people, drones, man. Like 500 something drone strikes, killed a US citizen with a drone without trial. I'm not blaming Obama. I just think the system is just so fucked. Like Obama didn't have enough agency in the system to change it. So. At some point, you just got to be like, I'm walking away. This is not legitimate, right? And that's where I'm at, right? You know, our choices now, Donald Trump and Joe fucking Biden. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, no, <laughs> you know, Joe Biden was instrumental in the war on drugs in the 80s. He is the, he championed the bill to prevent bankruptcy from being forgiven or student loan debt from being forgiven by bankruptcy. That has created a generation of indentured servitude. I can't stand by that. I cannot, I can't abide by bankruptcy goes back to like the fucking Magna Carta. Like the notion that you can't be an indentured servant is like a value from hundreds of years ago. And they just throw that out because what? Because they want to give student loans to kids that go to school. But if you give too many student loans, they start defaulting. The banks can't do it. So we got to put a stop over here. We got to put a stop over here. Now we got to bail out those kids because they can't pay back their loans. I mean, it's just an endless whack-a-mole game of unintended consequence. And I, I don't, I don't trust it. So that's, that's my personal and emotional appeal. <laughs> Jason, Sports, I wanna, bring us home, buddy. <laughs> I, I want to talk about you bringing in a development and especially children, I think is especially, is especially pertinent. And, you know, I know the two of you guys are new dads and I myself am an aspiring dad. Um, but like, it does seem like intuitionally accurate that, you know, the 
younger the child, especially like in infant ages, and it, it's like there's there's not the requisite uh, capacities yet developed to be like a full kind of agent in an economic system. So some of that uh, choice and will is sort of just made by default by the parents of the family unit. And, and that seems to be normal and healthy. And I'm not, I'm not saying that libertarianism is, is against that um, necessarily, but like this, this idea of like expanding that concept outward, like is there a, a ratcheting or even like a gentle progression of like, what is that minimum uh, acceptable set of norms on which we, we uh, interact with in what we consider like civilized society, right? And if you actually, to bring children in again, like if you go back enough time, like children were employed in factories, like children were uh, b- before there was a, a change in laws and a change in societal norms that uh, prevented adults from essentially like putting kids to work as early as possible. Like, and that I think really was, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful we don't do that today. And I imagined, you know, it would be interesting like if, if you sort of pulled the pin out of like whatever legal construct makes that um, not okay. You know, and if some entrepreneur was like, cool, I'm hiring some like, you know, eight year olds over here in this part of the country, you know, to like, cause they're cheap labor and we're going to make, like, I imagine these days that the market forces itself would be like, hell no, you know, we're not going to buy your products that have uh, child labor behind them because historically, uh, the the norms or the the shared morals or ethics have have evolved beyond that at least i would hope that that's the case i mean maybe there's this belief if if you like pull away the state kind of putting a limit on that we would just sort of devolve into like chaos but uh you know i'm not you know i'm not i'm not convinced that you totally need the state in all cases but i am kind of resonating a bit with what you're saying in that like you know there's this move overall in the collective dimensions to what whatever you want to call it greater peace uh greater mutual respect greater individual liberty or and then maybe even greater uh you know social good for for everyone and uh, like, so what is the role of like constraining or, or giving shape to the market that, uh, is required? And, and at least the, in the, in the minarchist version, that's the, you know, the night watchman state idea of, of libertarianism is like, well, y- y- the basic rules of the market need to be kind of protected by, by the state or something like it. Right. Cause without it, it's like the wild West. It's like, you got to kind of protect your own property with your own weapons. Right. So then everyone is sort of like a part-time security guard and plus whatever else they do. Right. Like there does seem to be a way that like at least outsourcing security and protection to, to a third party, you know, if it's the, the marshals or the sheriff or, you know, a private security force like the Pinkertons or a state security force like the police, like it does seem to be a, a fairly repeated pattern throughout societies to kind of outsource that protection of the market rules. 
to some kind of governance of some kind, even if it's not a, a state government, right? And like, okay, so that does seem to be a point of intervention. And this is where I, I feel very much, um, uh, I'm kind of resonating a lot with your skepticism or your critique of libertarianism here, Jason, to the, to the degree that that's behind your question. It's like, I, I agree. There needs to be some settling in of like, what is that minimum thing? And like, if you start thinking about children uh, and you know, where they become sort of fully kind of validated market actors, which they aren't when they're like six months old, right? Like when does that happen? And then what is it that we want to have true before then? And this is actually then becomes like, okay, the, what role does education play in that? Right? Like for them to like understand what are the basic things a person needs to know, like liter basic literacy, basic uh, mathematical literacy, maybe, or education on civics or money, or, or what are the things that we want children to know and to understand such that they can participate in the norms of the market or whatever it is that the market evolves into over time, right? Like there is definitely a relationship there of, of essentially like, um, I suppose like infusing the values of whatever our society is that it has reached in order for people to kind of be fully sovereign individual people participating in whatever that social exchange is. I'm, I'm kind of using these abstract terms because I think, you know, some people don't like to use the term market in this way because they sort of think about it in this way. But like, yeah, I, I, I do think there is a role to play for the collective, whatever that is, that helps to like uh, imbue and educate and develop the individual. It's like the responsibility of the collective dimension, at least through the local schools, private schools, maybe what people learn through church or religious communities to bring them to a place where they can participate in the, the game that we're playing together, like as a society. And there's no easy answer there for me in, in that. Uh, but uh, that's kind of what I heard in your question and kind of what that brought up for me, that development is intrinsically linked to what it means to be a kind of like a validated agent in whatever arena of social exchange that we're going to participate in. Totally. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, I think you... You, you really lined a lot of that up. And, you know, this is to me where it's like, oh, of course, there's a both hand and they serve somewhat different functions than, you know, government and regulations and democracy versus, you know, the free market. And one thing that just struck me is like, and, and then I think we can end and maybe agree to continue this conversation another time because there's so much here. But, um, you know, like a, it, it's like drunk driving, right? So this idea of drunk driving is a value that, as a culture, we decided not cool. You know, your agency to get drunk and decide to get in a car is threatening of my agency, right? Because I could just be driving home and your choices kill me. And I had no choice in that. So we decided collectively to enforce a value that you should not drive drunk. And if you do, 
here's a very strong disincentive. You will get arrested. You will get fined. You'll have your license removed. And I think, you know, of the maybe two things, just from my perspective, that are kind of clicking where I'm like, okay, here's things that may, maybe if we did have government, a healthy version of it, minimal, even at that, like, A, to have access capacity to help those that fall through the cracks of, let's say, the market, I would say. So there's a minimum level of, of like, like, like Port Shed health that they can attain so then they can then participate in the market. Um, and then the other would be, yeah, to actually have some disincentives. So certain things that, you know, the market provides an incentive to behave a certain way, but like certain values, I think we have to kind of be more the stick than the carrot for. And that, that just kind of struck, struck me as, as something, I, I don't know if you guys agree or if that makes sense, but like that would be, you know, how does the market disincentivize someone's freedom encroaching on my liberty that makes sense yeah liability uh, I, I won't answer we could go off on i haven't i have like yeah. to say about all these and they're great examples but these are the wedge these are the tough issues you know so you're you're keying in on cool them, right? i'll just I'll, I'll jokingly say why are the government roads so dangerous right like the, we make a why what why are the government roads so dangerous, right? We make assumptions like the only way to build a road is this flat thing with no division between it and cars going a certain way, right? Because the government has no liability in what it builds, but private parties do have liability in what they do, right? So it's, it's again, it's kind of like a, a solution for a problem that the government created, you could argue, right? People who will build the roads is the number yeah. one thing. It's like, why do we need roads? Like, why are we going to assume that's the best way to live? I can make a lot of arguments that that's not the best way to live. You know, urban sprawl, environmental damage, the danger, how many people die behind the wheel, drunk or not, right? Like you could make all these arguments. The roads were built to move missiles, right? Like the roads were built for government. I mean, not all roads, but like the interstate highways were initially built to defend our borders, like so they can move military back and forth, right? So now we have a dependence on that. But obviously I could mm -hmm. go on. Here's what I want to say in conclusion. Thank you for giving me a, a platform here. It feels good. I, I clearly got like fired up. I care, man. I care. Like this is me. Totally. I, I'm not trying to convince you so much, but I do want to think through all these things, right? Like you've given me a lot of things to think about. You know, this is, honestly, like how, how would that happen? I'm not sure. I bet we could figure it out. <laughs> like I have a fundamental belief in like human ingenuity, entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism, and and you know a, a deep position of peace and nonviolence. So I, I, I feel like I've expressed that. And I do think this is, you know, just the intro conversation. We could talk about anything else. So totally. Anytime you want a token libertarian on your show, call me up, buddy. Oh, I think there's, yeah, I would, I would love to continue these. Cause there's, yeah, there's, there's so much there that I, you know, don't understand still. And that I, I do love that these are kind of wedge issues because right. Probably based on, you know, my value set, the solution is a both and emergent that takes the best of the, you know, free market libertarian ideology and some of this government stuff of, yeah, what if the government had some liability? Like, what if we took this thing from the free markets and somehow, you know, had it more embedded? But um, yeah, these are juicy, juicy conversations. Well, on that that note, would be I, super I, cool. Yeah. On that note, I want to just offer like there have been thoughts around this out in the world. So there's one, uh, a notion called panarchy. This guy Broderland is a, a blogger and a Twitter guy. And 
He's written some amazing pieces in an integral lens around these concepts. Blockchain, like blockchain, distributed trustless phenomenon, right? Like how do we do money if we don't have a central authority doing it? Um, the open source movement, right? Like voluntary contributions mm-hmm. to the greater totally. good. Just people participate because they want to see it, right? It's beautiful. Uh, and there's a lot of like wasted time in there, I'm sure. But like a lot of amazing things have come out of open source. And, you know, holacracy, right? It's an experiment. And like, okay, well, if we don't have a, a ruler, who makes the rules? How do we make the rules, right? It's so it's a gamification of how to get things done without that dominator hierarchy involved. So there's a lot of things. I mean, you know, and there's other examples too, but those are just a few of the highlights I wanted to put out there. Like people are, this is evolution, baby. Like they're thinking about it, right? Like why pretend what we have now is the pinnacle. It's nowhere near, right? I totally. Yeah. I think that's somewhere where we, the three of us probably have a lot of shared reality is, wow, the system as it is kind of sucks, <laughs> right? Unless you're one of a very few percentage of people and that, um, you know, what can we do to create, you know, more depth for more span and integral ends mm-hmm. ultimately to give, you know, that would be, I think the driving motivation behind all this. So yeah, man, thank you for illuminating um, so much. And thank you both for helping <laughs> me cohere my, my idea vomits that uh, I often just don't know what to do with, but then boom, you guys bring it back home. <laughs> it's super fun. So yeah. We'll definitely, I think I would love to do more of these and keep, keep kind of at this conversation because I think there's so much richness here um, where, yeah, actually what I, what feels exciting to me about this is like, yeah, actually this is a co-creative thing, right? We actually have to create this thing. Like no one's going to fucking do it for us. Um, and it's, it's going to come from uh, good ideas being in creative tension. Yeah. Almost, I want to say something like in closing. i want to say in closing like i I resonate with kind of both of you here it's like well whatever this is an economy a market or a state or government or whatever kind of system that is those are human creations they are created and aggregated out of you know all of these years of history and all of these words that we've said out loud or all this shit that we wrote down somewhere and then we said this is what it is but this idea like you know, we create society, we create the economy, like it is in some sense, what we say that it is, right. And like some of the things that we've created have been pretty cool. And some of the things we've created have been really terrible. And um, I'm definitely not of the opinion that like, we somehow have landed on the best solution possible. It's always a work in progress. And it actually progresses through this type of dialogue, like weaving shared reality about what it is that we're doing. And looking backwards and kind of taking inventory, but also looking forwards and saying like, what kind of new thing can we create that builds off of what we already have? Like innovation takes place in the social dimension also. And that kind of jazzes me about, you know, what's possible in the future rather than kind of focusing in on the ideal, the ideologies of the present, whether it's socialism or libertarianism, and maybe there's some other thing. There's just none of those things. It's kind of like on the horizon and that gets me excited. Totally. It's, it's a thing we probably can't predict, <laughs> but we can keep engaging and relating. You know, the last thing I'll just close with that uh, is a personal belief I'm becoming more and more attached to is that you can't change a system unless you're willing to relate to it. Like mm-hmm. if there's a relational capacity that, okay, I don't like this system. 
to change it, like in my mind, you have to be willing to relate to it, you know? And, and so, I don't know, the more of reality I can certainly include while I'm relating to it, I, I imagine the better. So this is where it's good, you know, and I thank you for exposing me and um, inviting me into new ideas instead of making my ideas wrong. That's that's one thing I love about Casey and, and, and you too, Porch. Feels feels so good. And hopefully something that uh, we can continue holding the torch for, gentlemen. Special shout out and thanks to Screaming Witness for the amazing intro and outro song. Check them out.